Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history, like ugliness, frames and sauce. Oh, out of those three, Sam, I think I'd like to do ugliness the most. <laughs> I want to do sauce. I don't know, yes, sauce, sauces would be quite good. Or sauce, yes, sauce. We can think about sauce in lots of different ways. I'm thinking carry-on films. Or we could do waters, daughters and quarters, porters, quarters and slaughters. <laughs> I think that's history. <laughs> the history of slaughters brings oh. us to the... Brings us actually to the Squid Games that we talked about in our last episode on debt. However, this is to digress, and I apologise for that, as I normally do, because what we should be doing is following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of leaves is in fact all about Agent Orange and the Vietnam War, good luck, four-leaf clovers, superstition and nettle-eating... Christmas and what to do with festive foliage, and it's also about leaf peeping in modern day New England. Who knew, Sam? Mm. Or who knew that the history of trust is in fact all about 17th century Dutch merchants? It's about atrocities against First Nations, Inuit, and Messis children in Canada. It's about the stolen generations in Australia and the extension of credit and trade networks. Of course, it is. Wonderful stuff. Each of those fascinating, fascinating episodes. Do please get back and listen to them. You're probably wondering who is telling you all of these tidbits about the past. Let me just say that of my fellow presenter, if this man was a fisherman, he wouldn't be teasing the fish to the surface with a dry fly. Oh no. He would have a boat equipped with lights to illuminate and attract his prey, which would then gather in the shaded area underneath the boat before being caught on a lure. Yes, that's right. If this man was a historical fisherman, he would be none other than a squid jiggler, lamping his historical prey with the beam of his genius and the hooks of his research. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. Uh, that's extraordinary knowledge of uh, marine <laughs> Squid craft. jiggling. Do you, know, do you know much about ships? Um, well, <laughs> a little do you bit. Know, I, I, funny enough, do you know quite a lot about squid I, boats? Because oh, I've, oh, I've been on lots of them in China. Oh, very cool. <laughs> yeah, well, you may well be wondering, who is that unattributed voice that I just uh, named? Uh, so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this episode. Well, let's just say that if he were a squid-related historian, he'd only be a maritime monster of the historical world. So terrifying are his historical powers. So unfathomable <laughs> is the way in which he scours the ocean floor of the past. But... There's no great squirting cloud of ink blurring the clarity of his maritime research. In fact, he's nothing like a squid at all. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historical <laughs> adventurer, Dr. Sam Willis. I found it quite hard to hold that together because I started yeah, off by good. saying you were a squid-related historian and then you're in fact nothing like it, which often happens, Sam. Yes, just nonsense, basically. Utter but nonsense. that's fine. Yeah, utter, that's fine. Um, guys, we're doing squid. Uh, this is part two of our two-parter. Um, inspired by Squid Game. I hope you have seen Squid Game. Um, if you don't know what happens in Squid Game, go back to our previous episode on the history of debt, where James tells you uh, a rough idea of what's going on. If not, go and check it all out. Um, so we've done debt and all of the many, many ways you can think about the history of debt. Uh, and today we're going to be doing the history of squid. Uh, not so simple as the history of no. death, perhaps, but, or, but very, very interesting. I have a connection um, back to 
which is something that I forgot to talk about mm-hmm. um, in our thing on debt, um, which was one of the characters that I talked about there, and it links to what you were just saying about nonsense. One of the characters that I talked about there was that extravagant gentleman, Samuel Foote, who got in, who got um, put in the Fleet Debtors Prison for basically just being an extravagant uh, failure. Um, he ended up having a weird theatrical career, and I thought you'd love this. He um, he also uh, he also penned one of the most extraordinary pieces of nonsense prose I've I've ever read, uh, called the Grand Panja Drum, um, and I'll just read it to you, Sam, at the beginning. So she went into the garden to cut a cabbage leaf to make an apple pie. And at the same time, a great she-bear coming up the street pops its head into the shop. What? No soap? So he died, and she very imprudently married the barber, and there were present the pickaninnies and the jobli-lilies and the garolilies and the grand panjandrum himself with the little round button at top, and they all fell to playing the game of catch-as-catch-can till the gunpowder ran out at the heels of their boots. <laughs> Utter gibberish. I love it. I love it. Uh, guys, you should listen to our episode on the history of nonsense yes, as well. Exactly. Um, I forget what that link with, with Squid was. Oh, it was with Debt. That's why. So, Debt, we've done Debt, and now we're going to be doing Squid. So, we've done another podcast as well. On, on We mentioned Squid in our episode on the history of perfume, particularly squid beaks entering into the stomachs of whales and then kind of gooping down and then turning into. Um, an ingredient which is used in the history of perfume. So that immediately sprung to mind. But um, I am lucky enough to have just been in Berlin, where I, I absolutely love it. And I have uh, I went to the um, something called the Humboldt Forum. It is a, a new a new place you can visit in the middle of Berlin, and it has been built inside the remains of uh, the Berlin Palace. So the old royal palace. Um, it, so the equivalent in the UK, if you imagine there'd been a revolution in the early 20th century and uh, the Queen had been, a Queen and the King had been removed from power and we turned Buckingham Palace into an art gallery and museum. It's that kind of thing. So a beautiful old palace right in the middle of Berlin and it's now, um, having had a really fascinating history, it houses, um, among other things, the Ethnographic Museum. Um, and I also saw a really fascinating um, uh, uh, exhibition on the history of ivory. Anyway, uh, in this exhibition, um, I saw some wonderful uh, things, ethnographic museum, lots of lots of material relating to the German presence in the Pacific Islands um, and a German imperialism, lots of stuff to do with the German uh, colonialism in Africa as well. There are some wonderful waterproof garments made out of fish skins, some seal intestines, um, uh, musical instruments made out of armadillos, uh, leaf-nosed bats in gold. It was a really, truly a wonderful, wonderful place. Um, lots of material relating to the Hawaiian Islands uh, as well. And so I decided to have a quick look at um, fishing um, uh, in and around the Pacific and the Hawaiian Islands, uh, particularly fishing for squid. And I reckon there would be some interesting material there to discover, and there certainly is. I came across an article in the journal Man, uh, published in May 1917, which will all, of course, have piqued your interest. So what on earth is going on in May 1917? Well, it's a fascinating year in the First World War. 
um, you should all be thinking, ah, oh, the Battle of Arras. Uh, primarily, it changes. The, the, the Allies have a, have a much more successful year in 1917 than they did in 1916. They, they, they capture much more ground from the spring of 17 onwards. It's also when the Americans enter the war. So uh, that was what I immediately thought about with 1917. But I love the fact that someone had been writing in this journal in 1917 who was not... Uh, in the trenches, and it really made me think about how, uh, as well as Squid, uh, which is what he's writing about, but I really love the idea of life going on, life just continuing in the First World War. So you've got, yes, you've got people in the trenches having a terrible, miserable time and dying, but you've got uh, some people as well just minding their own business, writing articles to journals about uh, Hawaiian squid hook sinkers and sling stones. A chap called Mr Edge Partington. Well done, Mr. Edge Partington. He's particularly interested in Captain Cook, Captain Cook's third voyage in particular. And um, I just wanted to uh, read you a little bit about uh, a bit from this. Um, so before I do so, just uh, quickly locate yourself in history. Captain Cook, um, a British explorer, navigator, particularly famous for three voyages into the Pacific around New Zealand and Australia primarily, uh, last quarter of the 18th century. Uh, his third voyage, so we're talking 1776 to 1779, um, height of the War of American Independence. He heads off to Tahiti. Um, and uh, interestingly, he's he going there um, to... to He's got a visit there, but then he carries on to try and find the Northwest Passage. It's a very interesting example of a diplomatic mission disguised as something else. And during this voyage, he writes about um, some really interesting stones he's come across. This was published in 1784. Um, and what's going on here is it's a it's a sinker for a squid hook, right? So you've got your hook. Uh, probably made out of bone uh, or seashell. They had very sharp, sharp shells they used to catch squid in the Pacific in the 18th century. Attached to uh, a sinker, so you've got a particular type of stone. And Captain Cook writes about this, explaining that on some occasions, uh, for we got some pieces of hematites or bloodstone artificially made of an oval shape, divided longitudinally with a narrow groove in the middle of the convex part. To this the person who had one of them applied a cord of no great thickness, but would not part with it, though he had no objection to part with the stone, which must prove fatal when thrown with any force, as it weighed a pound. We likewise saw some oval pieces of whetstone, well polished, but somewhat pointed towards each end, nearly resembling in shape some stones which we had seen at New Caledonia in 1774 and used in their slings. So what's going on here? Cook does this quite a lot. He talks about um, types of warfare, um, weapons, tactics, uh, as well as the natural world. Here he's particularly interested in what he thinks are sinkers which would be attached to squid hooks which are being used in sling stones. Along comes Mr Edge Partington, who's uh, in America, I think, feet up, and uh, reading, reading the article man, and he writes this letter and he says that his attention has been drawn to a mistake made by Captain Cook in volume 2, page 248, 1784, in which he talks about sinkers and squid hooks as being used in sling stones. He then outlines the particular 
part of the book I've just mentioned, and then goes on to name all of the different examples in which sling stones from the Pacific and uh, squid sinkers are described. And here he talks about um, a, uh, an article in 1892 describing sling stones. The average size of these sling stones when fashioned into the usual form pointed at the ends is 2.4 inches on the axis and 1.7 inches transverse diameter. The weight averages five ounces, which is a range from 10 to two and a half ounces. And in another book here, we've got the brief history of the Hawaiian people. They talk about smooth, round pebbles and small stones, and not a single person, this is his, his conclusion of his piece, not a single person from all of the work he has, he has read bears out Cook's statements that these sinkers were also used as sling stones. So he concludes that Captain Cook has uh, been distracted distracted by his um, his belief in the martial capabilities of the Hawaiian Islanders or his, um, his, his, his confusion over using fishing tackle as weapons. So there you go, James. That's a, a fascinating story. And it's why the history of squid fishing is actually all about people with their feet up in the middle of the First World War. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Oh, Sam, that's terrific. Well, I want to take you from Archie the Giant Squid to an H.G. Wells short story and the depiction of giant squid in literature and art. So I thought I'd I thought I'd do that in five minutes or so because a giant squid come everywhere. I was struck doing research on this by a wonderful little blog article from the Natural History Museum. Uh, which was entitled Archie the Giant Squid, the monster at the centre of the Darwin Centre Spirit Collection. Now, this is a brilliant collection right at the heart of the Natural History Museum that has thousands and thousands of specimens in there. And what is at the... One of the chief exhibits at the centre of it is uh, a sort of a 10-metre-long uh, tank that is custom made out of acrylic and it's filled with a 10% solution of formal saline and this houses an enormous giant squid that was caught in March 2004 uh, just off the coast of the Falkland Islands and it measured 8.62 metres long um, and it was brought back and it has ended up uh, in here. If any of you are thinking about what this kind of um, tank might look like, it's a bit like the 
it's a bit like the tanks that um, Damien Hurst put those sharks and formaldehyde in. And it's there in all its glory, so you can go along and have a look at it. The squid, of course, has passed away. However, you can see its enormously long tentacles. And examples like this survive in museums around the world. And another really important collection is in the... Uh, United States in Washington DC in the wonderful Smithsonian Institute uh, in the National Museum of Natural History and it has several um, uh, giant squid there. One is a, a female uh, squid uh, that was caught in 2005 in Spain uh, and it is even it's even bigger than Archie. It's about 11 metres long. So it's about 36 feet long. Its tentacles extended 6.7 metres or 22 feet. So imagine, you know, quite how far it can, um, how quite how far it can it can fish. So I'm just sort of picturing these things that we can see nowadays and how mariners, sailors, fishermen must have experienced these fish in the past, but also how they were represented in literature. And this brings me to this short story that I was going to tell you about, which I read last night, which is by H.G. Wells, um, uh, called The Sea Raiders. And I was particularly struck by it because it describes a part of Devon that I actually walk along <laughs> quite often. It's it's off the coast of Ladrum Bay, Sam, very near, um, very near Sidmouth. And it describes um, a guy who who go Mr. Fisson, uh, who goes off and, and and basically discovers these these giant squid who then come towards him and and try and attack him. Uh, and I just wanted to read you some of this. Mr. Fisson, torn by curiosity, began picking his way across the wave-worn rocks and finding the wet seaweed that covered them thick rendered them extremely slippery. He stopped, removed his shoes and socks and rolled his trousers above his knees. His object was, of course, merely to avoid stumbling into the rocky pools about him, and perhaps he was rather glad, as all men are, of an, as of an excuse to resume, even for a moment, the sensations of his boyhood. At any rate, it is to this, no doubt, that he owes his life. He approached his mark with all the assurance which the absolute security of this country against all forms of animal life gives its inhabitants. The round bodies moved to and fro, but it was only when he surmounted the scary of boulders I have mentioned that he realised the horrible nature of the discovery. It came upon him with some suddenness. The rounded bodies fell apart as he came into sight over the bridge and displayed the pinkish object to be the partially devoured body of a human being. But whether of a man or woman, he was unable to say. And the rounded bodies were new and ghastly-looking creatures, in shape somewhat resembling an octopus, with huge and very long and flexible tentacles coiled copiously on the ground. The skin had a glistening texture, unpleasant to see, like shiny leather. The downward bend of the tentacles surrounded mouth, the curious excrescence at the bend, the tentacles and the large intelligent eyes gave the creature a grotesque suggestion of a face. They were the size of a fair-sized swine about the body, and the tentacles seemed to him to be many feet in length. 
There were, he thinks, seven or eight at least of the creatures, twenty yards beyond them amid the surf of the now retiring tide. Two others were emerging from the sea. Their bodies lay flatly on the rocks and their eyes regarded him with evil interest. But it does not appear that Mr Fisson was afraid or that he realised that he was in any danger. Possibly his confidence is to be ascribed to the limpness of their attitudes, but he was horrified, of course, and intensely excited and indignant at such revolting creatures preying upon human flesh. He thought they had chanced upon a drowned body. He shouted to them with the idea of driving them off, and finding they did not budge, cast about him, picked up a big rounded lump of rock and flung it at one, and then, slowly uncoiling their tentacles, they began moving towards him, creeping at first deliberately and making a soft purring sound to each other. In a moment, Mr Fisson realised that he was in danger. He shouted again, threw both his boots and started off with a leap forthwith. Twenty yards off, he stopped and faced about, judging them slow, and behold, the tentacles of their leader were already pouring over the rocky ridge on which he had just been standing. At that he shouted again, but this time not threatening, but a cry of dismay, and began jumping, striding, slipping, wading across the uneven expanse between him and the beach. The tall red cliffs seemed suddenly at a vast distance, and he saw, as though they were creatures in another world, two minute workmen engaged in the repair of the ladderway, and little suspecting the race for life that was beginning below them. At one time he could hear the creatures splashing in the pools not a dozen feet behind him, and once he slipped and almost fell, they chased him up to the very foot of the cliffs and desisted only when he had been joined by the workmen at the foot of the ladder way up the cliff. All three of the men pelted them with stones for a time and then hurried to the cliff top and along the path towards Sidmouth to secure assistance and a boat and to rescue the desecrated body from the clutches of these abominable creatures. (laughs) Chapter 59 in Moby Dick by Herman Melville also has the great live squid, these terrifying creatures that described i won't go into it here but they're ooh, go go and have a check out there as well it's interesting the kind of the alien nature of it the abominable nature of yes. it and, and how how the alien whatever that might be is described at a particular time and yes why why they were um i think so appalled and um by these creatures from the deep it's actually it's something that comes up time and again in maritime history i Secretly, James, um, when I've got a bit of time on my hands, I'm going to write a history of sea monsters because Excellent. the um, yeah the, the 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 kind of cultural reaction to fear of the deep I think is absolutely fascinating and it's a really interesting example here. Um, I I came across a truly wonderful story talking about um, fear of the alien, fear of the unknown, but this is applied to racism rather than monsters. Um, If you're interested in monsters, guys, we have done an episode on monsters. Do go back and try and find that. Um, But it's also linked with the history of smells, James. And I know that it's something that we used to talk about in our live show, the smellscape of the past and how smells can conjure up um, kind of moments in the past, moments of your own history, whether it's baking bread or your mother's perfume or whatever it might be. Um, fascinating example here, and this, so this is the, the history of smells uh, 
environmental history and racism all bundled up together. And the way to get at it is to look at Chinese squid fishermen in California in the 19th century. Um, essentially, the bones of this story is that you've got fish smells creating cultural conflict along the coast of California in this period. And it's it's a period where there's a lot of migration going on. You've got a lot of political, a lot of power, a lot of racial struggles all going on at the same time. And it is a wonderful example of it all manifesting itself over the smell of squid, particularly the problem being Chinese fishermen who've moved to the area and they start drying squid in squid drying fields and they absolutely reek and it leads to a campaign to to get rid of them. So, and, and I think the point to make here is you've got the Chinese, the Chinese fishermen, and the campaign is led primarily, of course, by white residents. And the way they describe what's going on it has all of the tropes of racism, but also linked to uh, particular things to do with smell. And the the end of this story is that there's something called the Pacific Improvement Company, whichever there was a sinister sounding company from the 19th century, it's definitely one of those. And um, they they own a little fishing village, which is where the Chinese fishing community are. They also own uh, the Hotel Del Monte, which is Monterey's seaside resort. And what happens is that they ultimately respond to the complaints of the affluent white guests and the Chinese are forced out. So it's a sad story, but absolutely a fascinating one. And what they're doing is that, is that they're, they're using smells, James. They're using odours to leverage political influence, um, which I, I thought was um, a really extraordinary story. So it, it all begins with the Chinese having a squid fishery. And that itself is not particularly straightforward. They, they settle in the Monterey Peninsula in California in the mid-19th century, 1850s. And they originally settled there to harvest abalone. So it's kind of a mollusk, isn't it? And they're, they're, they're not there on their own. They've got competition from South European fishermen. Uh, Portuguese whalers are there a couple of years later as well. Um, and there is I mean, a subsequent war um, a bit like it is in kind of gangs of New York. You've got a war over territory. You've got fighting with very little rules. Um, there is no real policing, and they are they're they're fighting to establish their territories. There's a lot of uh, uh, having nets cut, lines cut, people being chased down in the street and beaten. Um, and you know it's a very shocking, shocking story, all I think bound up in in anti-Chinese sentiments. And you can get at those ideas by reading the description of the Chinese fisherman's uh, little village where they live. And this is from a U.S. Fish Commission report, and it talks about how the Chinese lived in miserable squalor conditions that would be unbearable to white men, particularly those of American birth. What happens is that facing this hostility, the Chinese move and they start fishing for squid. And that's interesting because fish you have to fish for squid at night um, and there is a kind of social stigma to catching fish. So it, it is uh, catching squid, sorry. It is not seen as, so, as socially advanced, as economically profi profitable as, as, as whaling or traditional fishing. 
Um, what they do is they start fishing for the squid. They then bring the squid ashore. They split them open. They gut them. They lay them out on, on flakes, they're called, kind of drying rack. And they stay there for two or three days. Uh, very successful. Um, 1892, they managed to ship 357,000 pounds of dried squid. And a lot of it goes... Um, to dealers in China and also the Sandwich Islands, so stop-off points in the middle of the Pacific. Anyway, complaints increased. Again, there's another uh, description from another US Fish Commission report. They talk of the repulsive odour and their appearance was anything but attractive as an article of food. Um, and then the Chinese fishing village itself is unspeakably dirty, redolent with the odour of decaying fish. Um, the, the squid and other fish odours are revolting. Um, and they, what they end up doing is kind of correlating the unpleasant stench as a way of characterising the Chinese themselves as inherently repugnant. It's worth understanding here that there's a persistent belief at the time of, about miasmas or malevolent airs, particularly nasty smells, are um, you know, fundamental in the spread of disease. So it's not just a dislike, it's a fear of disease, a fear of spreading disease, which I think we mean, will mean something to us today in our time of COVID. Um, what essentially happens is that the, the people who own the, the hotel in Monterey in particular, they're trying to advertise their, um, their facilities as being brilliant for invalids, um, about people being able to prolong their lives. They talk about the luxurious facilities, the beautiful scenery. It's a destination for health seekers. And the Chinese farming squid, um, no distance at all from this very expensive hotel, obviously goes directly against their interests. And it leads, unfortunately, to the Chinese being being removed from, from their little village and the end of their squid fishing business. Oh, excellent, Sam. Excellent. Such detail such detail <laughs> for us right i'm going to take you on something of a journey now okay and i'm going to start by we talked you mentioned that we talked about perfume and the squid beak and how that sort of led to uh, the formation of, of perfume uh, all connected to a whale but i want to talk about another part of the squid and i want to talk about its ink and I want to talk about the biology of that. I then want to link it through to uses and food. And of course, I want to connect it to sepia and the use of squid ink for art. And there mm. are various practitioners nowadays who use squid ink to produce beautiful illustrations. But then I want to connect it to Lyme Regis and to Mary Anning, uh, the famous sort of fossil lady uh, from Lyme Regis, uh, who we all know about. And there was a recent film uh, about her um, and some correspondence that she had uh, with somebody who actually gave her, sent in one of the letters, a squid ink or sepia uh, illustration of a dinosaur. So I want to start off by thinking about squid ink or cephalopod ink. Um, all of you who, who know anything about, about squid will know that they have this ability to squirt out ink from a little sack uh, on their body. And they do this for various reasons, but part of it is about, it's about a hiding strategy. So when you're being chased by predators, you can spray out this, this smoke screen that then means that you can swim away and the hunting prey isn't able to chase after you. It's also a way of 
of sort of when when you've got eggs uh, that are sort of you know you're that you're um, trying to sort of hatch that you um, you're able to to protect them like that. Now this has been gathered by humans uh, and used in various ways. Uh, it's been used for for ink in pens and quills, and there is evidence of that being used back to uh, you know the, the the ancient world. There's Greek evidence for that. Um, it's also connected to sepia, uh, which is a, a associate, which is a brown color of ink that comes out of of um, of these. Um, cephalopods uh, and cuttlefish uh, and also squid um, and it's also been used in culinary art so it's used in cooking and I'm thinking here in particular about squid ink in risottos and squid ink in pasta and since I am a super foodie I just wanted to share uh, via on our journey to uh, fossilised ink I wanted to just share an Angela Hartnett recipe that I found on BBC Good Food magazine for squid ink pasta with crab and chilli so you've got to you need three sachets of squid ink here and you use that to I, I won't go into it in great detail but it looks it looks sumptuous white wine parsley basil ginger chilli spring onions garlic and then your pasta and your squid ink and you sort of mix it all up and and pop the sort of lovely sort of dark colour in it. You can actually buy uh, squid ink pasta that's already impregnated with the black ink. And it, it's quite a sort of ghoulish thing to eat on Halloween. But the thing that really struck me about looking into squid ink is that it has been that we are now able to access squid ink that is 160 million years old so there are basically fossils that survive of squid that have intact ink sacs and uh, there's a recent study uh, in the last decade or so I suppose that's recent where archaeologists have done analysis of the ink and found out that it is basically the same kind of ink that we use today uh, for sepia um, uh, sort of um, work. And as I was saying, this has been a practice um, from the 19th century onwards where people would have used this in for, for art. It would have been a, a kind of, of ink that people would have used for painting. And if you go online, you can have a look at some wonderful examples of modern day artists who are using sepia ink. Have a look at the Natural History Museum's blog, for example, and right alongside the Archie the Squid that I was talking about earlier on, you can see a wonderful uh, range of paintings done by a modern artist using this kind of ink. Now, this connects us to, as I was saying, this then connects us to a um, correspondence uh, between Mary Anning, the famous um, paleontologist who lived between 1799 and 1847. And she was in, based in Lyme Regis in Dorset, which is very near to where Sam and I live. And we've, we have actually performed at the theatre in, in Lyme Regis. Wonderful mm, what uh, a little, place, little theatre yeah. there. Absolutely superb. And she gets into correspondence with two uh, sisters, the Philpot sisters. And in one of these letters, um, they... the one of the sisters sends her a sketch of an ichthyosaur head that she's painted using ink 
get this, using ink from a fossil squid of the <laughs> same age as the oh, ichthyosaur, cool. which is 200 million years old. Um, and these, are, these letters are housed uh, in Oxford, uh, so you can go along and actually see the letters themselves. But I thought that was a wonderful sort of connection back, a way of connecting us back to prehistoric uh, squid ink. I love that, James. Brilliant. Um, I'm about to make a little little film on, on the Jurassic Coast, and so oh, we'll be thinking you? about Mary Annie. Oh, Very super. exciting stuff. Yes. Um, guys, thank you all so much for listening there. We've sort of touched on some of the topics you can think about with the history of squid. I would have liked to have gone into more detail about giant squid as sea monsters, and maybe I'll come back and I'll do that another time. Um, and that finishes our two-part little mini-series on Squid Game. So we've done debt. Go back and listen to that. That was Squid. And now I'm not sure what's coming up next, James. Oh, um, any ideas? We should start thinking about our famous Christmassy topics. Oh, do you know, I've got several. I've been doing my homework already. I have a whole have series you? of... Oh, of course, Sam Willis, of course. <laughs> Very, very organised. Very busy man. I have to be very organised with these things. And of an evening, I've been sitting down thinking, what do we need for our Christmas podcasts? And I've got okay. a whole slew of things for you. Are they things to make us feel cosy and warm? Of course they are. Of course they are. However, I have already made my Christmas cake. but I, And it's a Guinness cake this year. So maybe, as in our very first episode on Christmas, maybe we could, uh, maybe we could Guinness our cake. Feed okay, Guinness, it, okay, that'd Guinness. be good. Yeah, yes. I'd love that. Um, how about the history of rapping? Oh, and you know, rapping with a W rather than rapping with your W, yeah, rather yeah. than the Beastie Boys and Public yes. Enemy and and yeah, yeah. Co. Yeah, well, anyway, we'll come back with good. some wonderful Christmas ideas. Guys, if you want to find out what I'm up to, uh, lots and lots at the minute, of James and I both are very busy boys. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Sam Willis, also on Instagram. And if you're interested in maritime and naval history, the history of the sea in general, you might be inspired by our episode on Squid. Do please listen to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I am at James Daybell. The podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and Facebook, so check us out there. Check out our website, uh, which will tell you everything that we've been doing. There is also a shop there where you can purchase signed copies of books for Christmas. And we've got a big book, Histories of the Unexpected. We've also got little mini books that make great stocking fillers on Romans, Vikings, Tudors and World War II. And if you would like to be a patron of Histories of the Unexpected, head over to patreon.com and our unexpected page there. And anything that you can do to support what we're doing would be wonderful. Absolutely. We'll be able to release some more episodes. We're hoping to do so uh, to churn out maybe another one per week, see if we can get up to three per week regularly in the new year. So thank you for all of your support so far, guys, which has allowed us to do that. That's it for now. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Take care, guys. Bye.